Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock and Beer Podcast. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Welcome to episode number 50, where we are bringing you a very special guest, Anthony Fantano, the internet's busiest music nerd, somebody who I'm sure if you're listening to this, I don't have to tell you who he is, but pretty much the person who paved the way for, I don't know, I guess I would say almost all of us on YouTube who talk about music because he's been doing it pretty much longer and bigger than any of the rest of us. He's also somebody who has helped me a lot because, you know, he's been through anything that I could have been through years before I did it. He's given me some really good advice over the past couple years when I've hit certain walls or struggled with certain things. Super helpful. Like, whenever I've talked to him about these things, I just walked away from it going, yeah, I feel way better about this than I did before. So I wanted to have that conversation here so that everybody listening to the podcast could have that same experience because Anthony's a smart guy with a lot of good stuff to say and you all should hear it. So I'm very excited to have him as our 50th guest. But before I get into the show, I wanted to reflect a little bit on the podcast, give everybody an update and a little bit of a look behind the scenes or a listen behind the scenes, I guess, to understand why we do the podcast, what's in it for us versus YouTube, and just give you a little bit of perspective on that. So First of all, thank you very much to everybody who listens. I really enjoy doing this. It's just a lot of fun, and that's the main reason why I wanted to do it. But I am a very busy person. I have a finite amount of time, and I have to be careful about what I say yes to and what I choose to spend my time on. So before I decided to do the podcast, I had to think about it. Like, is this going to be the best use of my time? Especially because podcasts typically get way less reach than YouTube. Unless you're Joe Rogan, there are some exceptions, but generally speaking, the numbers for podcasts are just a lot smaller than YouTube. So for example, I typically these days get between like one and one and a half million views on YouTube, whereas the podcast gets about 50,000 downloads a month. And you know, it's not apples to oranges because my YouTube channel has been around for a few years. The podcast is only one year old. So it's not apples and oranges, but the point is that the podcast reaches a pretty small percentage of people relative to the YouTube channel. So the question would be, what does the podcast do for me that my YouTube channel wouldn't? Why should I spend time making podcasts instead of YouTube videos, given that I'm getting to get a lot more views on those YouTube videos, which are monetized and all that kind of stuff? Why do the podcast? Well, there are a few answers to that. Number one is it's definitely not the money. If I wanted to just make more money, the smart thing to do would be to make more YouTube videos because of everything I just mentioned. But I'm dumb and I like to make things harder for myself and I like to spend my time on things that don't necessarily make more money, at least not in the short term. So for me, the podcast is a couple of things. Number one, it's a chance for me to just go deeper 
on some of the things that I'm passionate about and that I enjoy talking about. You know, I like talking about business, whether that is music or YouTube or technology, whatever. I just, I really enjoy business. Like that's in the same way as other people enjoy painting or making music or something like that. Like business is the art form that is exciting and enjoyable and like scratches my creative itch. So I like talking to people about it the same way as if you are a guitar nerd, you like talking to people about guitars. So it's just a thing I wanted to do because I enjoy having those conversations. Number one. Number two is that podcasting is a great way to expand your network. Meaning that if you want to have an hour-long conversation with, for example, Allison from Spotify, who was on the show a week or two ago, I can't just DM her and say, hey, would you like to talk for an hour? Because, you know, she's busy. She's going to say, uh, that's weird, number one. Number two, I don't have an hour to just chit-chat with random people. The same for me. Like, Sometimes people say, hey, can I pick your brain? And I have to say no, as much as I would like to help them. Like, I just can't get on the phone with everybody and just chit chat. But a podcast is different. I can say, hey, Allison, would you like to come on the podcast? And then we can have an hour long conversation where we get to know each other and talk about fun stuff. But that conversation gets turned into a podcast that goes out to thousands of people. And so she is much more likely to say yes to that than just having a conversation with me. And since I don't do interviews or anything like that on my channel, this opens up a whole new set of people that I can reach out to, to talk to in this context. Great way to build your network, which has already paid off for me. I mean, it paid off is not the right word because I'm not really, not really looking for anything from that network. I just like to know cool, smart people that are doing cool things. And a podcast is a great way to do that. So I would think about that, you know, if you're interested in doing one, Yes, of course, all things considered, you want to have as many people as possible listening to your podcast. But as far as the networking benefit goes, it doesn't actually matter how many people listen to the podcast. Even if only 50 people listen to the show, you still got the chance to have a conversation with somebody who is interesting and may end up being a friend or collaborator or something down the road, starting with the podcast that you guys did. The second thing is that it allows me to kind of talk in a different way than I could on YouTube about some of the same subjects. So if you listen to the podcast and you watch all my videos, you know that I touch on a lot of the same things, but on YouTube, you know, you have to be a lot faster paced. You have to keep it more entertaining. You know, it's just a different medium. Whereas on the podcast, we could go into the nuts and bolts and details of say how Spotify royalties work and why that's such a good deal for artists. Where on YouTube, you know, I could maybe spend a minute and a half on that at most before people tap out because they're just looking for different things. It's, you know, YouTube is awesome and I love it, but it's not really the place to go deep on some of these topics from kind of, I don't know if a technical perspective is the right word, but it's just not the right place to go into detail on some of these things. A podcast is the place for that. I also want to talk a little bit about the results we've been getting from the show so far. As I said, we're getting about 50,000 downloads a month now between Spotify and Apple Podcasts and then all the other providers and pretty much uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts together, I think are about 80% or so of the downloads. I don't have the analytics in front of me, but something like that. One thing I've noticed is that the episodes with, 
I guess what you would call smaller artists actually tend to do better than some of the larger ones. For example, the episodes that I've done with quote unquote emo rappers like Shinigami and Lil Lotus and Lil Aaron actually have gotten more downloads than the episodes I've done with quote unquote bigger artists like for example, uh, Matt from Trivium. And I think there's a couple reasons for that, but the main one being that there just aren't a lot of podcasts with those artists and their audience streams a lot. So I think those get a lot of traffic from Spotify because now that they're going harder on podcasts, when you search for Lil Lotus or Lil Aaron or whoever, this podcast is a lot more likely to be surfaced as compared to Trivium where they have this huge catalog and they've been on a lot of podcasts and stuff and their audience I think just doesn't stream as much. The episode with Connie from Sea Space Cowboy also did super well. I think probably for similar reasons, you know, there just aren't a lot of interviews with her where some of these bigger artists they have been around forever and you've heard a lot of interviews with them. So not to say that people don't care, but it's not as special to hear interview number 100 with an established artist compared to like interview number three with a newer artist. At least that's my thinking. The ones with YouTubers have also done surprisingly well. I really wasn't sure about that, but for example, the Sarah Dietschy one, which is one of my favorites, did quite well. Another big development is that we signed up with a podcast network, um, I don't know, a few months ago, Sound Talent Media, which is an awesome group of people who are helping us out with a bunch of stuff that maybe in theory we could do on our own, but I'd really rather just have the help of a dedicated team to do those things. So a podcast network can do a lot of different things for you, but the main thing that this one does for us is help with cross promotion and ad sales. So you may have started to hear some ads on the show. That is what they do. They've signed up for the infrastructure that provides all that stuff, like the brand deals and all that stuff. They bring all that to us. Could I do that stuff on my own? Probably, but I really just don't have time for that and I really don't want to do it, to be honest with you. So I love the fact that we can just rely on them to do all that for us. It also helps the cross promotion. So I think there's something like 20 shows or whatever on the network now. And you may have heard ads for some of the other shows on this one or vice versa. That's really the main thing to me is I just want to grow the show and they can help with that. And it does help that now we're starting to make a little bit of money on the show. I still lose money on it, probably lost a couple thousand dollars on it this year. At least if you look at it, you know, from that perspective, because we didn't start running ads until a couple months ago. And even then it doesn't really pay for itself, but that's okay because of all the things I mentioned, because I like having these conversations, because it opens up a whole set of people that I can network with. And one thing I did notice is that when I started doing the podcast uh, in January, right around February or so, after the first few episodes of the podcast, the Patreon numbers went way, way up. So I don't know if it's because of the podcast. I don't know if that's a coincidence, but I kind of think that it does have something to do with the podcast because a podcast is where you really build a relationship with somebody. I mean, you're listening to that person's voice in your ears for... 45 minutes to an hour and that's when you really start to get to know somebody and you decide that this is maybe somebody that I really want to support because I want this person to keep creating content. You know, I support, I don't know, six or seven people on Patreon for that reason. Like I don't even pay attention to the benefits I get from them. I, I mean, it's nice, but I really don't care about those. I'm just giving them my money because I want them to keep producing content. And I think that that is how other people look at it, but I don't know, I'd be interested to hear from you all. How many of you signed up for the Patreon after hearing the podcast? Is that just a coincidence? I don't know. But if you look at it from that perspective, it has paid for itself. 
as I say in all the videos, I think it's because of the patrons that I'm able to hire Deanna, who is our amazing producer and editor who makes this whole thing happen. So I would highly suggest reaching out to her if you have any interest in making a podcast or if you already do one and you just want to make it bigger and better. She's the person to talk to and there's a link to her information in the show notes. So anyhow, that's a little bit of background on the podcast as far as why I've been doing it, where we're at, and the future of it, we'll see. I really just kind of want to keep doing what we're doing. I overall like the direction of it. Just want to keep the train running, grow the numbers. You know, I would love to be doing 100,000 downloads a month by the end of the year, 2021 that is. We'll see if that happens, but uh, thank you very much to everybody who has supported us so far. I'm genuinely very grateful for it. Really excited to do this and very excited to bring you this episode with Anthony Fantano. So. Thank you very much for listening to this, and let's get into this episode. Anthony Fantano, welcome to the podcast. I know you're a busy fellow, so thank you very much for making time for this. Thank you for buying into my tagline. I, I'm, in fact, just chilling here doing absolutely nothing. I'm not busy at all. I, it's, it's all a lie. It's, uh, it's, it's a trick. It's a media, it's a media gag just to, <laughs> just to make people believe that the best teeth in the game it's it's all it's all fake it's all fake news well look i know this is a little bit off topic but i was just hit by a bombshell minutes before this call i learned thanks to patrick h willems that there is an issue of batman that shows his dick were you aware of this no i was not aware of the uh, the, the the dick issue which i mean the dick shoe uh, is what they should, you know, refer to it as. I mean, I, you know, I mean, Batman's dick, Bruce Wayne's dick, really. He's circumcised, if that's what you're wondering. He's circumcised. I was curious about that. Was he about to, uh, you know, lay some pipe or some shit, or like, you know, what's what's the context here? No, he wasn't. He wasn't putting in work. He was just getting changed, uh, and okay. for some reason, they thought that was relevant. And and it's a scene where Alfred's there, right? And he's commenting on it. He's uh, he's he's there. He's he's. He's checking it out. He's he's seeing what's going on. I'm still trying to process it. You know, I'll have to come back to you with uh, with a report. But for this show, uh, I just kind of wanted everyone else. You know, you've helped me out a lot on my YouTube journey over the past uh, couple years, which I appreciate very much. Thank you. And I wanted to just kind of scale that up a bit and give everybody else the benefit of your wisdom and insights and stuff, because some of the things that you have told me have been very helpful and just, you know, probably some other questions that I think people may have. Sure. I mean, I, f I feel like I've done virtually nothing, but, but <laughs> please just, just, to, just tell, just ask me whatever questions and I'll, I'll try to do my best to, to illustrate do's and don'ts and anything in between. Well, the first, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's a question really, but just, yeah, it is a question. I think that we may have polar opposite taste in music other than you know maybe hyper pop and what Jermaine Dupree calls uh, stripper fight music which I think we both like other mm -hmm. than that I think we may have like just oil and water completely opposite taste and yet I love your content my question is for you what makes you pay attention to an artist because I just you know it's it's hard for me to understand the appeal of some of these things that you talk about in the same way as I'm sure you would say the same thing about the artists I like. What is it that makes you want to cover an artist? You know, could you could you give me like a specific example of a band that I cover or an artist that I talk about where it's, you know, you're just like not not to, you know, uh, you, you just don't see the appeal or something? Well, I mean, I guess I sort of see the appeal, but like Aesop Rock to me would be the exact opposite of anything I would ever voluntarily listen to. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really a case by case basis. I mean, I'll, you know, I, I think if maybe we kind of go off of a few different examples, if you have maybe a few more after I talk about this, we could maybe get a better picture. But uh, specifically in the case of Aesop Rock, I think he is a super unique rapper. I know that uh, his music doesn't tend to be super accessible, but uh, I, I like his uniqueness. I like that he's been able to, I guess, uh, forge a strong cult following with that uniqueness. And I also personally see the incredible amount of influence that he had on that super experimental early underground New York scene, you know, because you, you, you don't really have an Aesop rock and then get to a point where you have an LP. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or you have like an uncommon NASA or you have some of these other uh, abstract hip hop artists, uh, maybe even in a lucid that I cover pretty regularly. You know, he's he's the grandfather of a lot of super abstract shit. But the fact that he lives such a hermetic lifestyle and the fact that he he does tend to shy away from the cameras, as it were, I think uh, a lot of people tend to just not really make those connections because he's just in his own little world or whatever. And look, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan in the world and, or anything. And, and I know that some of his albums are are downright kind of difficult to listen to and, and digest. And he's somebody who in his own music, I mean, comments on that and kind of illustrates that fact, points that out. He also illustrates in his own music that it's almost like a defense mechanism of sorts because it's he's in a sort of really unique place as an artist where he's creating this product for people to consume, understand, enjoy, and get some kind of emotional meaning out of, and yet he purposefully makes it difficult for your average person to do that. It's almost like a screening process I think he puts a lot of listeners through, and uh, it's in in his own weird musical way, it's like kind of his uh, way of keeping, I guess, listeners who might not understand what he does at a distance. You know, it's, it's because of those factors and a host of other things. I mean, he is so verbose, he is so technical, I mean, all of those things, you know, compiling together plus the fact that he's he's gotten you know better at doing his own production over the years as well uh just make me respect him as an artist as a voice as a figure and you know he's got a few classics under his belt as well i mean you know and the fact that to this day i think he is still putting out worthwhile material all of that you know certainly makes me uh want to cover his his new work even if it's not my favorite that he's ever done so historical significance or influence might be one of the criteria historical influence significance again uh, i would say uniqueness as well i mean you could probably bring up uh, historical influence and significance uh, in regards to ACDC, but I'm not exactly like chomping at the bit to talk about their umpteenth album that sounds the fucking same. So what would be the difference there then? You know, just because I feel like the ACDC formula has been so unwavering over the years, there's just so little to comment on. For like 45 on, you know? years. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like... What is there really to say? They're doing little to nothing to actually make their music translate to a newer audience, and there's really nothing to reveal or explain or kind of bring to the forefront or anything. You know, I mean, nor do I think the material on the new record is written in such a way where it's surprisingly good. You know what I mean? It just kind of... Just kind of sticks to that typical ACDC formula without really rocking the boat too much. And, you know, I I guess across the board, um, you know, this doesn't just apply to ACDC. A lot of artists kind of fall into this I, I don't know. I, I, you could say it's a trap, but I mean, if it works for you financially and emotionally, go and do it. But a lot of artists, you know, will 
kind of reach a point of fame and acclaim and historical significance. And then once they've kind of hit that point, uh, they're just kind of feeding to their aging audience what exactly they want, which I mean, a lot of people get to a certain age and they just want to hear something that's fucking familiar anyway, you know? So, um, I mean, if, if that's the position that you're in and that's what you want to do, go ahead and fulfill that role. But for me personally, as early as I could remember, uh, that, that kind of has been of no interest to me. You know, I'm, I'm always looking for something new and exciting, whether it's an old artist taking a risk or trying something else out or a new artist. How much of a factor is, I guess, uh, industry conversations? I mean, I'm sure everybody, you know, and their mom wants you to cover every release on your channel. It would be physically impossible, even if you wanted to. How yeah. much of a factor is that for you? It's it's a factor in so far as uh, my audience is like requesting certain things of me. But it's not like if if there's a manager, I mean, I'm sure you're friends with a lot of these people and their teams and stuff, yeah. you know, and the manager's like, hey, can you do me a solid? How much of a factor is that? Yeah. If a manager's hitting me up, that has absolutely like no factor whatsoever. You know, in terms of like industry credibility or relevance, it's more of a factor in terms of is this actually making a splash as a result of promotion, as a result of singles, as a result of whatever? Uh, is this making a splash in the larger music community to the point where it's generating conversation and I'm being hounded day in and day out? By the to, fans. Yeah, by, by my viewers uh, or by the fans of whatever artist uh, to, you know, review the new Weekend album, review the new Weekend album, review the new Bon Iver, review the new Bon Iver, review the new this, review the new that, review the new Kanye West. If the industry is generating that kind of buzz for a particular thing to where people are actually responding to it and demanding a point of view on it, then, you know, that I'm certainly responding to. But like, you know, I, I get hundreds of... PR emails in my inbox sure. every week. And, you know, if, if, if I was to go solely off of that, I'd, I'd be totally lost because you know, <laughs> which, which PR person's opinion do I put higher than any other PR person? You know what I mean? So, you know, at, at the end of the day, if as a result of the industry, there's some kind of consensus among my viewers that, you know, they really need my opinion on a certain thing, then, I, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to fulfill that. It seems like one kind of uh, philosophical difference that we have is that you seem to very clearly be oriented towards serving the fans or, or sort of speaking to them, whereas I, and, and I'm not saying there's anything at all wrong with that, or even that it's a deliberate decision on my part, but I feel like I'm speaking more to the artists than I am to the fans. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I've watched plenty of your content, and I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that you don't ever talk to the fans, you know what I mean? I, I, I know that I personally, that's not necessarily a, a conversation I'm interested in outside of maybe doing an interview, you know, to ask for maybe more information or more specifics. You know, if, if I'm having a conversation with the artist, it's more to, um, to learn, you know, than to uh, sort of assert whether or not what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking is necessarily correct or the way to go. You know, I'm, I'm more interested in just kind of the general music conversation happening among the fans, uh, especially in the internet age where opinions have become so democratized. To try to generate or create that conversation with the artist can be, depending on who it is and what the opinion is and what they're open to, can be 
gratifying, can be a risk. It's a total crapshoot because, you know, they made the piece of music that you're talking about and they're going to have their own point of view and opinion on it, which they're obviously entitled to. You know, that's, that's also coming from an extremely biased place because they're going to have a certain emotional attachment to the thing that they made that nobody else is going to. So, you know, even among the most hardcore fans of that artist, I mean, there may be a little less emotional attachment than to the piece considering they haven't literally made it. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in sort of having that wider conversation just in the general kind of music culture sense about what's hitting, what's not. I mean, I, I feel like uh, the artist has kind of done their part, you know, at that point. And, uh, you know, the internet and everyone with an opinion on it is going to kind of take it from there past that point. I, I won't repeat it because you, you said it privately to me, but you gave me some sort of good thoughts on sort of the nature between the critic and the artist that I, I found. very, And I don't really consider myself a critic necessarily but you know a commenter whatever commentator a central part of your credibility is being willing to say that something is in your opinion shitty when did you sort of make the decision to just say i'm okay with whatever fallout comes along with that like when did you realize that that was a path that you had to choose i i think to make it really simple it kind of boils down to you know, if you're going to make omelets, you're going to have to crack some eggs at the end of the day. I know it sounds kind of cliche, but that just kind of is what it is. But um, I, I guess be careful about what eggs you're cracking because, look, I, I do negative reviews. I give negative opinions. But you're not an asshole. Yeah, I'm a total dick. Um, but, you know, I, 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 th I think there's a... But there's a difference, you know, because some there are some people who would call themselves reviewers that I think are mean when they're saying something negative. And I think, you know, other than a few examples where you, you know, really might actually dislike someone on maybe somewhat of a personal level, like you're not you're not mean when you say something negative, in my opinion. You know, I, I think to a degree, meanness can be a tool as long as it's not sort of personal though the 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 line there is sort of blurred because a lot of fans and a lot of artists see whatever it is they're creating yeah. as a personal piece of work you know they, they see themselves in their art they see their art as a reflection of themselves so if you're attacking that art you're attacking them um in a way you know that's that's not how i see it but well, it's definitely people, how a lot of artists see yeah, it. Sure. A, a lot of artists and a lot of people see it that way it, it, and it's a legit it's a legitimate way to see things sure i, I think it's weird when fans see it that way like when they take your criticism an artist they like as a personal attack on them i think that's weird when it's an artist totally get it but the fans i don't agree with that it depends on what kind of fan i mean i guess a general fan no but a stan yes you know somebody who's like literally writing the letters and sweating and you know to the point where the yes. pencil is falling out of their hand like them like of course they're going <laughs> to feel that way <laughs> but um you know I, I i guess at the end of the day like meanness negativity I think it has a time and a place as long as you are being careful about what eggs you are cracking. Because look, if I wanted to do nothing for the next year other than do zero out of 10, one out of 10, or not good type reviews, I could. It would just require me to like just troll the internet mercilessly for like the worst shittiest, most unlistenable, random ass demos people are uploading online on 
SoundCloud, on this, on that, on this other platform. But the thing is, there's, there's no real value in that. You know what I mean? Who's, who's, I'm not going to get anything out of that. The artist isn't going to get anything out of that, especially if they're to... I bet that would make your channel grow faster maybe, than it ever has, maybe. which is, which is unfortunate. I wish it wasn't like that. Maybe. I mean, honestly, like I've been in situations where people have perceived my very negative like takes on certain artists if they're of the more independent set with a smaller audience as being like bullying or that sort of thing and um you know while i don't personally see it that way you know there there is sort of like a value that i feel like maybe some people get a kind of value out of that but it's not the kind of value that i want to derive necessarily i i think there's kind of a uh not not just in reviewing, but I think in all types of criticism or content creation, I think it's uh, probably important to, as best you can, nobody's perfect, but as best you can try to maintain a punching up type mentality. Like if you are going to be, you know, pointing out, you know, mediocre art or inefficiencies or, you know, things that are just downright offensive in the industry, it's probably better to you know, cite and point out the most prevalent, popular, relevant, and influential instances of that as opposed to, I don't know, somebody who's like literally on the fucking bottom rung of life and has no platform or audience whatsoever. 10 up and coming rappers who <laughs> fucking suck shit. Again, you could do that. It would be popular. But the way everything progresses right now, and, and unfortunately, the way that the internet gives so many things premature exposure you never really know who is going to come out with that next great project or song that ends up wowing you or whatever you know i'll, I'll say in the case of uh backwash uh for example who is a canadian rapper and producer and songwriter who um i've recently reviewed and her newest release is really kind of like blown up big time. She just won a Polaris prize off of it and, um, you know, has gotten tons of press and a lot of new fans. And, um, you know, a lot of that generated from, um, you know, my, my review of that record. But um, previous to my coverage of that record, uh, she had been sending me her stuff for a while you know, for, for at least a couple of years. And, uh, you know, the older stuff I thought was okay, but it had potential, I guess, you know what I mean? But if I had just up and decided to review it at that point, I would have been giving somebody who next to nobody knew sort of like maybe a five or a six out of 10 or something like that. You know what I mean? Like it, it would have been a very middling review for something that people weren't even really curious or aware of to begin with. And for the most part of people, you know, part of the reason most people don't take a risk to explore new stuff is because they assume it's going to be bad. You know what I mean? So if you're going to be exposing mm -hmm. people to something that they don't know yet, like you might as well make it something good, you know? So at least if, so at least I'm kind of generating that expectation with people that they have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. They'll assume that, well, maybe he's decided to talk about it because, you know, it's worth talking about. So, you know, if, if you're going to be uh, exposing people to something, you might as well expose them to something that you like. Do you ever feel pressured to, like, cover whatever the latest meme person is? Like, I mean, I guess you do in your second channel a little bit, which I want to ask you about. But, you know, like the, oh, my God, have you seen the latest so-and-so on TikTok? Aren't you going to review his new song? Yeah, you know, if there's like kind of a viral hit or something that's come out and it's generating a lot of conversation, I mean, sure, why not? You mostly steer clear of that stuff, though. It depends on what it is. Like, if there's artistic viability to it and 
I enjoy it and there's something to say about it, you know, outside of that, it's just like a really dumb, shallow joke. Sure. You know, why not talk about it? You know, there's nothing inherently wrong with addressing it if there's something worth saying. If something is hitting, in my opinion, something's hitting, you know, it it doesn't really matter to me where it comes from. Mm -hmm. If a song gets hot off TikTok or gets hot off 4chan or gets hot off a Twitter or an Instagram meme, I don't really give a shit. I mean, especially since these days, I think memes have become kind of a central part of music promotion among the fans. Absolutely. They're a valid form of human communication now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just basically showing that there is enjoyment of the thing that you are making the meme of. You know what I mean? That there's some kind of engagement there. If people are thinking about something long enough to make a meme about it, I mean, that's that's saying something. I mean, maybe it's like uh, the cuneiform stone tablets. Like, we can't fully translate all that stuff. Maybe some of those are memes. Maybe those are the ones we can't translate. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of see uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics as just basically like image boards, you know, the, the, ima- the image boards <laughs> of the old times, essentially. I'm pretty sure that that's how the archaeologists see it, too. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, speaking of your second channel, I was kind of surprised. I realized you've had that for something like three years now, right? God, has it been three years? Um, that's kind of crazy. I thought it was maybe two, but uh, but that's cool. Three years. According to YouTube, it's 2017. Okay, 2017. Which is a long time, but you know, relative to your YouTube career, I, I guess to me it feels kind of recent. Maybe it's because I'm old and you know, time time flows fast for me now, but what made you start that channel? And I mean, you're up to a million subscribers on that in, you know, whatever, two, three years, which is super fast growth. What made you kind of decide to start that up? Yeah, just basically in my own experience, and I know there are a lot of different ways to run a YouTube channel, but in my own experience with experimenting on different types of content types and schedules on my main channel, I've just seen a lot of, um, I don't know, just a lot of drops in views or subscribers or negative reactions if... There's a lot of jumping around in the types of content I'm putting out or if I'm double uploading or triple uploading or something like that. Um, or maybe there's not as much concentration in views on a particular video that I would like because the other videos are kind of almost like splitting up the views that one would get over mm-hmm. the course of a day or something. And simultaneously, I was still continuing to get a lot of emails and tweets and general inquiries about uh, what I thought about a variety of things that weren't necessarily an album release, you know what I mean? And it just sort of made sense to answer that call on another channel. You know, I tried doing the podcasting thing for a while, and I thought maybe addressing some of these issues just merely on social media would kind of, you know, uh, solve the problem or answer the question, as it were. But at the end of the day, it just kind of made sense to why not just do a quick little webcammy type channel where I'm just like rail rattling off these thoughts really quickly off the top of my head if I have an opinion on something like this and uh, just turn it into a quick video that I just turn around generally faster than uh, stuff on the main channel. At first, there were a lot of reactions to the fact that like the quality on one channel was like a little bit lower than the other because I'm just talking into a webcam in front of my desktop in my office where I'm doing my editing and my listening and my writing and so on and so forth. But I think over the course of time, people have kind of come to appreciate the kind of difference in tone and intimacy and everything between the two channels. One, I'm just more casual and quickly throwing my thoughts out there on something that I'm just reacting 
reacting to, whether it's a song, whether it's news or something like that. Meanwhile, everything I'm doing on the main channel is just a tad bit more methodical and just uh, planned out. I really like the second channel because, uh, as you said, you're a little bit more casual. And to me, that fills in some of the details about who you are as a person, which in turn makes me understand the reviews better. Was there any kind of an inflection point? I mean, I guess that was after you already had a million subscribers on your main channel. But was there any kind of inflection point or change in tone or anything that you saw there after people kind of got to see that more personal stuff? I I can't entirely say, you know, I I feel like before the second channel, I would do my best to try to, I don't know, make some kind of personal connection somewhere, you know, before the second channel came out, you know, it wasn't like I was just kind of like, you know, the music guy and nobody knew anything else about me. You know what I mean? I mean, occasionally I would do streams where I talk about personal stuff or I do advice columns on Instagram or, you know, I just be tweeting about random shit here and there. Um, And again, as I had said, you know, prior to the second channel, I used to experiment with a lot of different kind of content types on the main channel. But now that the second channel is there to me to for me to kind of jump around in anything that I feel like at any given moment, it, it sort of just leaves a lot more room for the main channel to just thrive off the reviews and content that fits a very specific kind of format. So I think it's kind of a benefit to both at the end of the day. I think both channels kind of have a different experience and, you know, it allows me to be a little bit more kind of creative or just throw out opinions on other topics in one space. And meanwhile, in the other space, I don't need to reinvent the wheel every time. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, this is the content I'm making every day. This is today's content, tomorrow's content. I can really make a plan with all of it. I can feasibly plan out whatever my content is going to be pretty accurately for an entire month, as long as I have like all the album releases in front of me, you know, for that span of time. And I could, you know, sort of map out what I'm going to cover and what I'm most likely not going to cover. So, you know, it, it, it allows me to plan things out more effectively and efficiently, you know, just gives me the room to cover as many releases as I possibly can, because, you know, I can only fit so many records into a why you know review and you know even doing one of those a month i mean a lot of people still come away unhappy with like oh how come you couldn't talk about this or talk about that i mean as much as i would like to review everything i can't but uh uh, yeah you know I, i think there's definitely a benefit to doing both of those. I'm actually considering maybe doing a, a third channel where I'm sort of putting up streaming clips if I'm going to be doing more streaming because I've been uh, you know active on Twitch as of late. And I know a lot of the interviews that I've been doing would probably you know net more attention if I broke down some of the segments of it into more bite-sized sections right. where we're kind of talking about a specific topic for a few minutes as opposed to asking people to jump into an hour-long conversation with somebody. And you have an editor who helps you out now, correct? Yeah, my managing editor, Austin, pretty much handles, you know, the editing on the Fantano channel. My buddy Jeremy has edited the reviews on the main channel for years. He pretty much just does a very rough chop of whatever video footage I've sent him, editing out the flubs and the mistakes and the rep- and the repetitions and the you know, lines I fucked up and just kind of edits it down to the raw review. And then I go back over it again, you know, making sure the 
album art's good and you know everything is kind of squared away with the score and the title and cutting away some more things that I think might be unnecessary or redundant and just kind of boiling it down to the stuff that needs to be said but uh but yeah you know it's uh, I'm still going over you know much of it at the end of the day but yeah I, I work with editors I have a, a lawyer that I work with that if I need to do anything lawyerly like you know <laughs> I typically hit him up I have a few people who you know, mod for my uh, Twitch channel as well, who I give some money to. And uh, I, I work with a, a, a freelance editor uh, who goes by the name of, of Ryan, who, uh, you know, I, I throw him some videos every once in a while. Uh, if I'm doing something on the Fantano channel, that's a bit more comedic in tone or requires some weirder glitchy edits, something more experimental or funnier, meme or tongue in cheek or whatnot. So there, there's definitely like a little team, you know, behind, uh, all of it with uh, Austin pretty much working with me full time on everything. And meanwhile, everybody else is like kind of on a, you know, contractual or like a part time type of basis. Full time, meaning Austin is working 40 ish hours a week or whatever on your content. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For 40 ish hours a week where, you know, we're working, um, you know, we, we, we don't, you know, he, he doesn't uh, live near me. We're not working sort of like in the same physical location or anything, but, uh, you know, we're in touch every day. And, um, you know, just talking about like, what's the new video going to be today? What's the content for today? What's the content plan? What's just come out? What's worth talking about? So on and so forth. So. I mean, even with a team like that, you still produce like a staggering amount of shit. Like I consider myself a pretty prolific person and you're like an order of magnitude, like more prolific than I am. Yeah, it's, it is a lot. I mean, I'm, you know, sometimes I'm, I don't know, I, I don't really have a lot of time to think about it. You know what I mean? It's really just like being in the middle of a mosh pit every day. And, um, you know, I, I enjoy the pace and I enjoy the excitement of it and I enjoy the you know, the, the chaos to a degree. And, you know, I think over the years, I've kind of reached a certain level of efficiency with it. And if anything gets added to the recipe, it's, you know, to supplement or, you know, sort of contribute to everything that we're doing, or we make sure that it slides into the whole process really efficiently. I mean, um, before COVID, I think, you know, around after, uh, the second or third adpocalypse, as it were, Austin and I started up a Patreon page, you know, just out of concern of like, mm -hmm. you know, how, where the fuck is YouTube going? You know what I mean? Um, so the Patreon thing was 2019? Yeah, it was 2019 or 2018. I can't quite remember the year, but uh, it, it, whenever the second or third adpocalypse was. and um, I think that was 2018, but I could be wrong. Yeah, and we were just kind of getting freaked out by YouTube's instability at the time. And we're thinking like, well, honestly, like, even though uh, the situation currently is not dire, we'd like to build something where it's kind of there and established and functioning. Just to de-risk the business a bit. Just so that if something were to happen on YouTube, it's there. Now, I mean, it's, it's cool and it's, you know, we're putting out content and people seem to enjoy it. And we do, you know, monthly classic live streams that the patrons pick and we do, uh, you know, patron only let's argues. And, you know, we can certainly add to that and branch out if it comes to a point where we need to like focus on that 100%. But, you know, we don't want to be in a position where we're caught with our pants down and, you know, YouTube's like demonetizing more shit left and right. And then we're like, oh, what the fuck are we going to do now? We have to start a Patreon from scratch. 
I mean, the, you know, the idea is a lot nicer to be able to kind of coax people into buying into a Patreon where there's already like over a year's worth of backlogged content on it that you could just dive into right, as right. opposed to, um, you know, just like starting one up from scratch and promising people. Yeah. You know, it's even though I, there's like absolutely like no reason for you to trust me, uh, this is going to work out. You know, what I mean? <laughs> like I can tell, you know, if, if I ever need to like beg people to go on the Patreon page, you know, I can point to the fact that, look, this has been going for over a year now. So, I mean, you know, join up and enjoy what other people have been enjoying this entire time. But, um, but you know, in uh, Austin takes a, a, a very primary role in just kind of making sure the stuff on there gets out and comes together and, uh, you know, and any and all ventures that, uh, you know, we're working on or, you know, get worked in um, either Austin or I myself, because he's not necessarily connected to any of the Twitch stuff. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm making sure that it slides into everything really efficiently because when I'm doing a lot of my Twitch streaming, I'm also generating content for the second channel or I'm listening to albums I'm going to review on the main channel. So, you know, I guess if you're really desperate to see that first exposure of a certain record or a certain artist to me you can subscribe and join up and watch it there and then that gives me i guess so contentizing the stuff that you were already doing yeah exactly because i was going to listen to that fucking shit anyway you know so i might as well do it on stream and you know also get to i guess some feedback as to what other people think about the record as well because you know sometimes when i am uh, listening to something i will think a certain thing you know i, I will have a certain kind of feeling um and sometimes it's really uh i guess convenient to have you know that uh uh feeling confirmed you know um whether or not you know my senses are are kind of uh you know accurate in a certain context or whatever by you know if, if i hear a certain um you know uh i i was just uh listening to the new um king gizzard you know, uh, record in, you know, on stream. And, um, you know, there, there's definitely a certain confirmation bias among my viewers in terms of, you know, me and my opinions and so on and so forth. But there are some people who are pretty frank about whether or not I'm wrong or something. How often do you listen to them and go, you know what, I was full of shit? I mean, it happens. I, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is like, if I make a comparison and, you know, I'm doing it live and I get all of a sudden like a sudden amount of like, uh, you know, a huge amount of pushback, I'm may you know either be like well maybe i'm wrong on that or maybe i'll go back and i'll make i'll i'll, ma I'll take the time to listen again you know to sort of like make sure that that comparison is actually accurate if i am going to make it on video um or sometimes i'll make a comparison and there will be a bunch of people who will be like oh yeah you know that's that's true that does sound kind of like that you know so again it is uh it, it is nice to i guess have a bit of a, a testing ground you know for certain opinions and ideas and, and reactions to things you know it's uh because typically the the streams are, are uh, you know, very intimate and, and low-key in terms of the crowd size, unless there's like a really huge release that's dropped that week. So it does kind of create a, a place for me to kind of throw some random feelings out there and just kind of see how they play. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest, to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths 
and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. And let's get back into it. The reason I was asking about the second channel stuff is because one of the things I've been, I don't know if struggling is the right word, but trying to figure out recently is kind of how to solve or how to approach that same thing of like, there's some stuff I want to do that uh, a decent sized chunk of my main channel audience either doesn't care about or actively hates. (laughs) And... You know, it's kind of uh, up to me now to decide, well, do I put that stuff on my main channel and let the chips fall where they may? Because I think it is a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem, you know, like the stuff that does best for me is when I'm talking about new metal and 2000s butt rock, which is fine, but that's not what I want to kind of really hang my hat on. Sure. On the other hand, 
uh, I don't want to be stupid and, you know, look a gift horse in the mouth. And so it's the, the, the question I think a lot of creators have at a certain point is like, oh, I didn't really intend to be known for this thing, but here I am. Do I give the people what they want or do I kind of push back on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it sort of depends on, you know, like what exactly is this other content or other stuff that you're trying to put out there that your audience right now is not taking too well to? I mean, I myself, you probably already know. Anything about rap they don't like. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm, I was just going to say like, you know, I, I myself have experimented with, I, I mean, I used to do another channel where I did fucking meme reviews, right. you know what I mean? And then there came a time where, you know, they, they became really difficult to monetize because YouTube was just demonetizing the channel left and right. Mm -hmm. Plus it was like, it was at least in my experience, the predictability of the wave and the YouTube algorithm and when to actually drop a piece of content or what meme to sync your efforts and your opinions and your humor into. Those were pretty heavily edited videos, as I recall. It seemed like a good amount of work went into them. Yeah, they, they, they were heavily edited. They were heavily edited as well. You know, the, the thing is, is like... <sighs> It was a super fun sort of like project to embark on, but we, we couldn't sort of like efficiently monetize it in the same way that, you know, we could the music stuff. You know what I mean? It just wasn't as easy to, there wasn't sort of like a super clear formula to it, which I mean, personally, I was fine with. I mean, part of the reason I was, you know, doing the channel in the first place was to completely break any and all like conceptions of a schedule, every video being the same consistency, so on and so forth. You know, I, I found that uh, it became sort of, you know, difficult because I was in a position in a way where I was like almost building a different brand from scratch as opposed to reinforcing the one that people already knew me for. Now, given, you know, there are a lot of young dudes in my audience who are into meme culture, like there was a lot of crossover and, you know, from my regular channel. And um, there were a lot of people who enjoyed the content that we were doing. There were a lot of people who were aware of it and were just kind of like, I don't know, not for me. I'll just keep watching the music reviews or whatever. You know, at, at the end of the day, like once all of the waves of monetization hit, demonetization hit, it just made more sense to like let's just make another channel where it's just like we're just focusing more on music and just trying to stick to that now i mean if your audience is in i don't know a position where they, they won't they don't listen to you talk about music in general like you can only talk about a certain kind of music i mean i don't know i i feel like ultimately like that's a little on them. I mean, you know, I guess as long as they're not unsubscribing from you for starting another channel where you're just talking about other shit, as long as it's music related. Yeah. I mean, well, that's quite, I'd rather not have two channels, but if I have to, then I have to. So, you know what I mean? I just, I would rather not have two channels because that's just more work, more two things to maintain. Look, I mean, if, if, if you find yourself in a position where you have to defend it, like, look, music is music. And as long as you stick to it and you're talking about stuff that's relevant and you're putting out opinions and content that's worth watching, like worst or I guess best case scenario is that all you're going to end up doing is like building a somewhat semi-separate audience on that channel where they hear you talking about other stuff that just right. casts a somewhat wider net. I would imagine you have some of that. You know, you you cover a wide wide variety of music, and I'd imagine the person who watches a Megan The Stallion video might not watch whatever indie kind of thing. 
Yeah, no, it's true. I, I think at first when, you know, the channel was kind of growing and evolving and progressing in 2010 and 2011, and I was covering, you know, a wider, a somewhat wider array of, of genres because at first when I had started on YouTube, you know, I was just doing mostly indie stuff. And it wasn't because I didn't appreciate or like other genres, but on YouTube at the time, you know, there was already a, another small YouTuber who was covering a, a lot of hip hop stuff. And there was a smaller YouTuber and, and we all had channels of around the same size at the time who was covering a lot of metal stuff. And Sammy Jerush of the Rocket Out blog was covering a lot of more mainstream rock stuff and more, uh, you know, uh, stuff that's more chart relevant. And, um, you know, I, that just sort of seemed like the pocket for me at the time. Plus, I mean, I sort of came out of that indie blog boom of the late 2000s and that just uh i i guess uh coverage wise made the most sense to me i mean you know at, at the time you have to consider that the indie bubble had not really popped yet and a lot of the publications that kind of built their name on that brand didn't really venture too intelligently outside of that scene anyway when it came to music coverage so that just kind of seemed like it made sense for me at the time you know what i mean like the hip-hop publications talk about hip-hop and the metal publications talk about metal and you know there, there's very little crossover if any between all that we're all in our own little separate sections but you know the internet really kind of tore all of those uh boundaries down as listeners gained sudden access to basically everything and there's not really anything keeping you from becoming a hip-hop or a metal fan or an anything fan suddenly you know outside of your inability to click on it and just you know give it an open and honest ear um so over time you know I, I was trying to venture out and just talk about other genres that uh you know i i enjoyed as a music fan but i wasn't necessarily like you know super comfortable talking about just because uh, maybe to an extent i felt like it wasn't my place or i wouldn't know, i wouldn't know how people would take it or whatever but um you know i mean i, I got over it uh, you know other people got over it who maybe wouldn't have been willing to listen to me prior and elements of my audience as well who were like, Oh, I liked it more when you talked about more metal stuff, or I liked it more when you talked about more indie stuff, you know, kind of got over it too, because I mean, you know, I think you're either uh, changing with the times or you're, uh, you know, floundering. Right. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, sometimes I, I feel like I'm a chicken shit because I'm so, um, I don't know, I guess because I'm such a marketer at heart, I'm like, well, give the people what they want. But at the same time, you know, I mean, there's only so many videos I can make about 2003 new metal and butt rock bands. It's not exactly a hot topic. You do want to give your audience what they want if you do have kind of a, an, an established audience, but simultaneously, you've always got to be thinking as well about the audience that's out there that you haven't attained yet. You know what I mean? Because that's like, you know, that's that's kind of the audience that you want at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Right. Not to and, and and you want to try to figure out a formula that allows you to maintain one while fostering the other two. You know what I mean? You don't want to try to gain a new audience at the sacrifice of your previous one. I mean, I, I guess a more recent example of this today is every once in a while, and this is like, you know, once in a blue moon, I mean, I kind of respect the scene and a lot of the artists in it, even if it's not my favorite, you know, genre of music or anything. But, um, you know, every once in a while, I will cover like some K-pop shit. So your Blackpink one fairly recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and I, th I think there's some bangers in there. You know, I, I think there are some good releases here and there, some, you know, nice tracks that are quite good. And um, the more I listen to it, the more I'm hearing 
more of a stylistic separation between each major major artist out there mm-hmm. and you know how certain artists might have more of a dance pop flair while others favor more trap type production or others might have more rap verses than others and so on and so forth and um you know usually when i do it there's always like some people bemoaning the fact that oh i can't believe you're talking about k-pop it's so uh you know it's 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 funny like every criticism that they have of it you could just apply to any and all forms of american pop sure of course <laughs> it's like uh, it's so commercial it's so formulaic it's so this is so that yeah yeah so is literally every fucking mainstream artist that charts over here like that's there's literally no difference but yeah you know th- there are some people who uh just can't stand me talking about any k-pop whatsoever but uh, th- i mean they just have to kind of fucking get over it because it is a legitimate you know, genre and scene and form of music. And on top of it, it's not like I talk about it to death anyway. You know, it's, it's really every once in a while that I'm talking about a, an entire release anyway. Yeah, I guess the, the challenge for me is that because a lot of my audience came from talking about older stuff, they just literally don't know who a lot of the newer artists that I want to talk about are, even if they're not. I mean, I don't consider Ghost Main to be like super new, but most of them don't know who he is. And uh, so yeah. those tend to get low views. But I, I think I just need to suck it up and deal with that and just trust that if I keep doing that stuff over time, I'll, I'll accumulate that new audience. You know, look, I I think you do. And on top of it, while I'm not a Ghost Main fan and I've had my opinions about his music that I've put out there, like for the music that you usually cover and that you usually talk about, like covering Ghost Main and pointing out... Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes 100% total sense. And how could you not, in the position that you're in and talking about the stuff that you do not take the bull by the horns and illustrate the fact that, hey, all of this shit that you guys say that you love so much from this particular era is a major influence on this new artist's music, and they're doing something completely new and crazy and refreshing with it that actually appeals to a younger audience that has no clue what the fuck any of this shit is right. from the late 90s and the early 2000s. Like, that's absolutely something that you should do, you know, given the content creation, you know, process and, you know, uh, coverage that you have but you know if, if there are people in your audience that don't fucking get that then I, that that's on them at the end of the day you know that's you know you, you can't cater your content decision making processes on people who have their heads up their asses or they're stuck in the past because at the end of the day your channel will just end up reflecting that and your views and your success and your numbers will suffer as a result of that because you know as as some people may be comfortable sort of living that out in their own lives generally speaking your average person doesn't want to be that guy you know what I mean? So, you know, don't, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy personally and, and don't embody that guy as a content creator either. You know what I mean? You see how, for everybody listening, how inspirational, you know, you can imagine Coach Fantano from the sidelines, you know, giving you the pep talk like that that makes you walk away and go, yeah, you're right. Fuck him. I know, I, I know what I got to do. Thanks, Coach. He set me straight. And then he, you know, gave me a little pat on the shoulder and like, all right, all right, kiddo, back in the field. No, I I agree. And look, I but but I mean it. I mean that's that is sincerely like very helpful and you know makes me kind of 
shake the fog off. And, you know, that's uh, this is exactly what I wanted people to hear. Yeah. You know, I, I think people need to have that mentality. But simultaneously, I think the type of content that you've done that that may attract that type of guy is also really important, too, because more often than not, you know, while I think um, what's great a lot of, uh, what, what's great about a lot of young music listeners is just the fact that they're so open to so many different things. I mean, you know, th- th- there's, I-, I think there's still something maybe to be said for super abstract or experimental or harsh music uh, sometimes because, uh, I mean, that, that, you know, has difficulty translating no matter what, you know, era that you're talking about or, you know, uh, generation you're talking about but uh outside of that like when you're talking about style and genre really like the sky is the limit you know in terms of like what you could potentially turn them onto or get them into and um while that's great and that's really admirable and that is something that i think is fantastic about this new breed of music listener simultaneously you know this new generation lacks i think is a lot of contextual and historical perspective and i think that your content brings that to the table and you know, um, I mean, I know I myself, you know, before YouTube and before your channel and before a lot of things, you know, I myself dorked out over like, oh, it's so cool that, you know, this artist is here and I love this artist and they were influenced by this artist and this art movement and sure. this genre that started this year. And th- these three records were like the three, three main albums that, you know, like branched off in all of these records or, you know, j- just to take a band, for example, like the Velvet Underground and think about all the various musical ideas on those albums that have impacted like countless records to come past that point and even Lou Reed's solo stuff too. Or more recently you debunked the Broken Side 100 Gex myth, shattered it. (laughs) Mythbusters. That as well. That as well. Sometimes I think it's important to uh, break connections if they're not great connections. So, but you know, I, I think you bring a lot of historical perspective to the table that I, I wish um, maybe some newer music listeners cared about a little bit more. I think that type of content shouldn't just be for the type of person who just like misses those days. You know what I mean? What's interesting is like when I do that, I guess it does what you're saying, but to me, the person I'm speaking to is the older person where I'm I'm basically saying, hey, that stuff you liked before, people are still doing it. It's just in this somewhat different form. Yeah, yeah. And and, that, and that's true. I, I sort of forgot about that, that element of it. You know, you're right. It goes both ways because I talk to a lot of these like emo rapper kids who I guess I've discovered a, all of them watch my stuff and they say what you just did. And that's awesome. I didn't really expect that to happen, but it's awesome. And you know what I've, I started making zines 25 years ago, you know, writing about music. And what I've always wanted to do was shine a spotlight on stuff that was happening now, rather than just looking backwards. It's like, you know, when the fucking village voice or whatever discovered black flag in 2012, Mm -hmm. like, congratulations, you're about, you know, 35 years late to the party, but (laughs) congratulations you know i think it sucks for all these artists who are doing something cool that gets ignored and overlooked until decades later when you know the powers that be recognize it so i always want to document stuff that's happening now that isn't getting enough attention or credit instead of waiting until many years later when they fucking had to quit because they didn't make any money and nobody cared I agree, you know, and and I do think that, you know, you do definitely do a service by pointing to some of the newer artists or even kind of newer, 
genres that kind of ended up dying prematurely um, and, you know, sort of pointing out the uh, significant players in, in those styles as well. But I mean, as, as far as the, as you say, the era of music that you sort of cover primarily, I think you've created a prime piece of real estate because, you know, especially if you continue talking about artists like a Juice World or like a Ghost Mane or something like that, because those aesthetics, or your boy and those, MGK. yeah, because those aesthetics and those influences and those sounds are just invading the pop and hip hop sphere in such an aggressive way right now, in terms of not just the music but the ethos and the fashion sense as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, somebody definitely needs to be making those connections because the people who are creating this stuff are clearly paying attention and mining from this shit in a really conscious way. And uh, a lot of the audience members don't quite know like exactly what it is, you know, or where it came from Mm -hmm. or sort of like, you know, what the uh, inception point of, of all of it is and to sort of, um, you know, illustrate the connections there, I think um, is, is an important thing to, to do, especially with, um, you know, I, I, I think as all of this is happening, you know, a lot of youth punk bands are really kind of like diversifying in terms of like racial background and stuff like that. Like I'm seeing a, a like a really cool and interesting wave of like really radical and exciting black punk artists and bands kind of cropping up here and there. There's a huge scene in Indonesia that I don't know much about, but I know it's big. Yeah, 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 for sure. But, uh, you know, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, I, I think that's kind of doing wonders for the punk scene and the hardcore scene too. I think that's only going to kind of make the music thrive even more because I think, uh, you know, today's music listening audience is a versatile, dynamic and diverse one. You know what I mean? And um, if, you know, genres like rock and punk are going to continue to thrive and translate to new audiences, which, you know, I I think it's kind of hit a slumber point right now. I, I think it's kind of lying dormant waiting for a moment to come back around when, you know, just whatever generation is coming up next, maybe the the alphas who are, you know, I, I guess like <laughs> kind of toddlery. Is that what they call the people after the Zoomers? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's exactly after the Zoomers, but I think the alphas are like around toddler age at this point or some shit. Okay. If that sort of generation ends up being the generation that like, you know, in turn ends up rejecting the, I guess the, 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 synthetics of you know the zoomers and the younger millennials and so on and so forth and maybe goes back to you know sort of like a more minimalist rustic live instrumentation something i mean who the hell knows like who wants to listen you know your dad made you listen to migos when you're a kid maybe things will become even more hyper pop down the road who the fuck knows past this point yeah <laughs> but uh uh you know if if, if these genres of music are going to come back in any way shape or form the, the artists making them need to reflect the audience consuming it you know what i mean and for the most part like the audience of your typical straight white uh, punk band that's singing about the same shit punk bands have been singing about for the past 30 years, that audience is aging and dying and being phased out. And, you know, hey, look, that's not to say anything about older white bald gentlemen who create content on the internet. Obviously, we can evolve and learn new things and talk about new things like me and my friend here. Try. 
you know, not, not, not all of us are willing to, you know, kind of take the dive and, and sort of like, you know, um, uh, learn new things. And, and, you know, that's, that's not anything uh, specific to us really. I mean, every generation people just kind of hit a certain age and they go back to what they know and they go back to what they're comfortable with. I mean, even Zoomers are going to reach that point where they're all writing think pieces on Huffington Post version 4.0 and being like these fucking alphas and their, I don't know what, jelly bean toast, whatever the fuck they're putting on toast. You remember real music like Lil Nas X? Yeah, remember remember, remember real artists like Lil Nas X? Do you remember when we had real music back in the day? It'll happen. Well, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time because uh, it, it's getting late. But two-part last question. The the one thing I would like to help everybody with, which I hear from a lot of people, is you know, there's a lot of people that want to start a thing, and there's sort of the technical questions about how to do it and whatnot. But the the bigger barrier, I think, is the fear that they have from getting started in the first place. I guess the the first part being for anybody that thinks that you know on a pragmatic level that they need to have uh, a bunch of gear and make beautiful fancy videos or whatever what would you say to that person yeah i mean look at tiktok i mean there are people who are absolute millionaires off of tiktok just off of shooting fucking videos off their phone you know like it it doesn't need to be high sort of production value it just needs to be entertaining it needs to be informative or your second channel yeah. for that it needs matter. to be entertaining informative engaging or just anything that gives the audience pause you know so i mean tiktok uh, you know is, is is living proof that you know it doesn't need to be super high production value i mean look there's there's merit in the Joe Rogan type system where you're making millions of dollars a year and you've got a studio and great lights and a producer and all these mics and mixers and so on and so forth. I myself would love to do the same thing one day. I mean, I remember his first podcast. It was like a webcam with a fucking like sparkly lights filter on it that was just like propped up in the back of their room. Yeah. You know, and, and you got to start somewhere, you know, and, and the thing is, if, if you're good and you're engaging and you are gaining an audience and you're growing an audience, the opportunity to build out in that way will come. The, the opportunity to do that will come, you know, at past that point, you will go wherever your ambitions take you. But, uh, you know, don't be worried about whatever you're doing, having to be perfect or having to have the highest production value ever the moment that you get out of the gate you know just make it the best that you can for the time that you can and accept the fact that you'll make mistakes some of the stuff you'll make will suck and that you will learn from those mistakes and just improve on what you're doing every time you'll get faster at doing it you'll get funnier you'll get better you'll get more engaging as long as you're willing to be introspective because there are some people who who, who will literally continue to do what they're doing, never progress because they have little to no self-awareness about what they're doing. You have to be somebody who is kind of self-critical and self-analytical in order to take a risk, do something different, push yourself outside of your comfort zone and improve what you're doing in a, uh, a wholehearted and, and genuine way, not just in terms of like, oh, well, I can afford a new camera now, so the picture is nicer. No, I mean, in, in terms of the way your content works and flows and functions and engages, like you can only improve on that if you're being 
really self-analytical and, you know, don't take any examples that you could find of anyone on the internet saying, well, this guy's been making content for 15 fucking years and their channel still just has 10 subscribers. You know, okay, those examples are out there, but has that person actually taken the effort to improve in a notable way, either the content they're making or the way they roll it out or uh, anything? You know, I, I think uh, just accept the fact that it's not going to be perfect at first and just give yourself the time and the room to get better as you continue to do it. Second part of that kind of related, think the other big barrier for people is fear of being judged, of failing in public. You know, they're afraid that people are going to think they suck and that they're into weird shit and criticize the way they look and blah, 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 all that other stuff. What would you say to someone who's afraid of that? I mean, I don't know. At, at least in terms of me, that's not something I can really afford to humor, especially since like I'm judging as a career at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Like I, sure. I can certainly uh, understand that fear and understand that hesitation if you're trying to sort of content create, I guess, from a more arts and creative perspective, especially if it's kind of something commercial and you really kind of need it to hit, you know, and you need it to do well and you need it to take off and you need the audience to buy it or stream it or receive it well. You know, I, I think sometimes it is important to kill your babies if, uh, you know, you're, for example, I don't know, somebody who does sketch comedy or, I don't know, some kind of jokey type or vloggy type videos on TikTok. If you feel like the certain thing that you're doing and you've gained an audience, you know, you have the experience. If you feel like a certain thing that you're doing is not good or it's not playing out well, it's time to change it, edit it, or, you know, just like approach it with something new or refreshing. But, uh, you know, again, as I, as I can say in my case, I can't worry too much about um, whether or not people don't like me. I mean, of course, like when thousands of people are hating on you on the internet every month and a lot of them are throwing the same two to three to four jokes at you again and again and again, like, aren't you the guy that gave that particular album that particular score? It's like, uh, yeah, that's me. You know, it, it does get kind of grating and annoying. You know, at, at the end of the day, like it, it is still a type of engagement. And while you don't just want to kind of generate a platform that brings you nothing but hatred, uh, we do live in an era where... Uh, it's part of the deal. These platforms monetize that shit all the same. <laughs> Whether or not somebody is yep. loving what you do or hating what you do, as long as it's being consumed, it's to your benefit. And at the beginning, you're going to have a small audience. So there aren't going to be thousands of people making fun of the way you mm -hmm. look because not that many people are going to be watching your stuff, which is good. So you'll be able to get used to that feeling as your audience grows. And that's the other thing. I feel like even though I've been doing this for a long time and, you know, maybe it would have been great out of the gate to be making six figures a year, like the, the year that I started, maybe that would have been great. You know, it would have been fantastic. But uh, I feel like I personally feel lucky that uh, I've been able to grow into this in a way where the negativity, the positivity, the level of attention that I've gotten from fans and labels and publications and artists alike has kind of scaled up in a, in a very gradual way. You know, I, I didn't really have to deal with it coming in a super sudden wave outside of like maybe a review in 2009 or 2010 popping off a little bit more and maybe there were a lot of negative comments suddenly or I don't know, like I, I remember back in the day there might have been like a, 
a now defunct message board or two where some music critics or you know like a uh, journalists here and there maybe frequented and and were just like hating the fuck out of me and just like you know uh, thinking you know just talking about what of a loser you know what a loser I was god forbid how did you survive I know I know but yeah you know <laughs> shit shit like that um and and that's most likely going to happen to you too if you're doing anything that people are actually paying attention to nobody's really in control of like how the audience or the internet is going to take what you do i mean it could go viral and then you're completely irrelevant in a year or you could find a way to kind of turn it into a long-term thing. But, uh, you know, if you can kind of branch it out and kind of drag it out for as long as you possibly can, I mean, uh, that's the experience that I know. And that's the one that I would recommend. Uh, it, again, personally, at least it's, it's given me the ability to take the negativity and, and everything else in stride and sort of understand it at a slower pace as opposed to kind of getting lost in the haze of it which I'm sure can imagine if it all comes on very fast, whether that's negativity, positivity, or really any kind of intense amount of attention in between. Great. Well, that sounds like a good place to end it. Uh, again, thank you very much for being podcast guest number 50. Uh, and thank you for all your uh, assistance and help and shout outs and stuff over the past couple of years. It really has uh, helped me a lot. So I appreciate it. Any words of wisdom or uh, anything else you want to leave the folks with before I let you go? Five zero fifty. Congrats. Congrats on the 50. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Bye. And as always, let's get into a few viewer questions from Jules Bean. Hey, Finn, I struggle with anxiety and playing and listening to music really helps me as an outlet. Do you listen to music uh, to help you with your mental health? Do you think there's a relationship between music and mental health in terms of coping mechanisms, etc.? Have a great day. Well, I think there's a fine line here between using something as a coping mechanism or as a catharsis and wallowing in it. I talked about this in my video where I talked about Frankie from Mirror taking back a lot of his old lyrics or saying that he regretted them and didn't identify with them anymore. A lot of people say what you said about music, and I think that it's true at times, but I also think that there's times where listening to sad or angry stuff traps you in that emotion, and that's not healthy. And if you think about it, people don't want to hear this, again, because you know we all love music and we all want to think that you know music is perfect, but it, it, if you accept that music can have a positive effect on your well-being, on your mental well-being, then you have to also accept that it can have a negative impact on it, right? Because if it's able to affect your emotional state, that can go either way. So I think you just have to be honest with yourself at a certain point just to say, I feel like shit and I'm listening to this song about feeling like shit. Is this actually making me feel better or maybe is it making me feel worse? You can test this by listening to something happy or upbeat or positive or whatever and see if it doesn't make you feel better. I think it will. Uh, I've noticed, you know, like uh, for, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, the Little Lotus song, uh, Never Get Away, makes me feel really shitty. Um, probably because I identify so strongly with what he's talking about, those lyrics about like depression and just feeling like you're gonna feel that way forever. And it just like, it makes me feel really shitty to listen to that song. And I love the song. I think it's a great song. And you know, the fact that it affects me like that to me, like says a lot about what a good job he did on it. So I don't mean that as like, you know, any kind of a criticism. I just can't let myself listen to the, that song too often because it just fucking bums me out. It just, 
brings me back to the place he's talking about in that song, and I don't want to be there, you know? And I'm sure if he was listening to this, he would understand, you know, why I'm saying that. So that's my answer is just be careful to always monitor your own emotional state and the music and other kinds of media that you take in and ask yourself, is this making me feel better or not? And be honest with yourself. From Tyler Craig, are you or have you ever been a fan of anime? If so, what are some of your all-time personal favorite series? Must have been really cool to grow up in such a sick time with so much cool anime like the 90s. I was a fan of anime when I was a kid, and this is back in like the, you know, very, very early 90s when anime was still very underground. It was really hard to find any of this stuff. Like nobody knew what anime was. I remember when I was in eighth or ninth grade, so uh, I was seventh or eighth grade. So like maybe 91, 92, I got like, I paid $40 for a fan subbed tape, VHS tape of Bubblegum Crisis. I mean, that's, and it had like one or two episodes on it. This stuff was really hard to find back then. It was really expensive. Remember that's $40 in like 1991 money, which is probably like 70 bucks or something now. And over the years, you know, I, I like the way anime looks. I really liked Gundam a lot when I was younger, uh, but not watching it. I just liked Gundams. The thing with a lot of anime is that I just, I don't know, it's like comic books or superhero movies or anything. It's for kids, and the stories just don't hold my attention for the most part. I think the art style is really cool, and I'm, I'm happy to see that that's become so popular now because it's a great style. But most of the stories just, I mean, you know, they're for 12-year-olds, so they're not supposed to be something that is entertaining to me. That said, there are a few uh, shows that I think just really transcend the medium. Uh, Death Note is probably my all-time favorite. I think that's just a fucking great like thriller show they did make a live action version of it and it's bad but the best animes like transcend the fact that they're anime and they're just a good story with good characters attack on titan is another great one uh, especially the anime is amazing the manga kind of looks like shit the anime is amazing that's a good one naruto is great my wife is absolutely obsessed with naruto so i have seen the entire first and second series of that which is I don't know, that's like 500 episodes or something in total. I've seen all of them. Uh, I know Naruto pretty well, not as well as she does, but it's a great story. Like, they do an amazing job of building up all the characters, especially, like, the villains, the bad guys. I think they do a good job of, you know, making you empathize and understand why the villains are the way they are, uh, like Gara and Sasori, and, you know, it's just... The characters are amazing. The lore is ridiculous. I, that show is awesome. There's probably a couple others I'm not thinking of, but those would be the three, which may be a pretty entry level, but I like them. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home thinking about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. 
I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts.